of Ephraim, one of our fathers, and he of which we are sprung. And I barely got into it when I diverted over to to Deuteronomy 28 and spent the rest of the time there. And I think it really probably stuck out to us how much that means today now that we're in the process that God said would happen, that the punishment would come if we would not obey his ways and follow his rules. Uh, now we see ourselves having the curses coming down upon us. It was one thing to read those some years back and say, well, that will happen. It's quite another thing to read it and see the stark reality that it is happening right now. So let's do a, a brief review here going into Isaiah 28, because I think I understand it and may be able to explain it a little more clearly than in the past when we've gone through here. Uh, the focus being mostly on Ephraim as the firstborn son. Uh, God made that change in the birth order, so he put Ephraim first. It's woe to the crown of pride to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower which are on the head of the fat valleys of them that are overcome with wine. So we are drunk on pride. We are drunk on materiality and greed. We're drunk on money. And it, is, it has become an idol to us in this society. We have put money ahead of God in many, many ways. And that is one of the idols that God is in the process of destroying before our very eyes is our money. God says the idols and the idolatry have to go away. So, as much as we've worshipped the American dollar, as much as the world has accepted it as their God, as their standard, it is going away. It's a fading flower. You've seen flowers start to curl up the first frost, and the beauty is gone, and there's nothing left but a dry brown stem. <clears throat> and we've been overcome with the drunkenness of our materialistic society. Behold, the Eternal has a mighty and strong one. He says in Isaiah uh, that the Assyrian is the rod of his anger, and in other scriptures he shows that there will be other countries confederate with them to come and destroy us. So he is sending a mighty and strong which has a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, as a flood of mighty waters overflowing, shall cast down to the earth with the hand. So it begins to curl up and die and fade, and then God is going to send someone to absolutely destroy Ephraim. The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, shall be trodden under feet. Now, something is dead and gone when you tread it underfoot. You just walk all over it, stomp on it. There's no power, no pride, no strength, nothing left. Just to be walked upon, a place to put your feet. Talking about our country right here. And for some who insist that this is Manasseh and Ephraim is the UK, uh, both are going down and it will be the same for both. Ephraim is the leader of the children of Joseph, or the two children of Joseph, uh, but the other, Manasseh, goes down as well. So it happens both ways. It's just that we're seeing so many things that 
fit this country being Ephraim instead of Manasseh. He picks us out as the leader here at the time when it comes apart. And at the time of the coming apart, who was the leader? I think that should be quite obvious to us. The United States is the worldwide leader. The British pound is not the world currency. It is the U.S. dollar. So when he addresses the leader of Jacob, the leader of Israel, at the end time, just as things are coming apart, he addresses Ephraim as being the leader, and the United States obviously is the leader. So there you have it. Okay, and the glorious beauty which is on the head of the fat valley shall be a fading flower, and as the hasty fruit before the summer, which when he that looks upon it sees while it is yet in his hand, he swallows it up or eats it up. In other words, he says our country is just like seeing the fruit beginning to ripen at the end of the summer, and someone's going to grab it and swallow it quickly. Swallow it up like a dog eats meat. Hawks it down is the way we are going to be destroyed. It's going to happen very, very rapidly. Interesting, he uses that analogy of a fruit ripe at the end of the summer that's gobbled up. And here we are at the end of the summer, just starting fall, and we're starting to fall. The autumn of the fall, or the fall in the autumn, or however you want to put it. Uh, I think it's interesting that this scripture is written in this way, and here we are at that time of year, seeing it being gobbled up by strangers. Our wealth is quickly being shifted to China and Japan and other places, being swallowed up of the Gentiles. It reminds me of a, an article I read yesterday. In fact, I even emailed the, the fellow this morning because the article uh, was right spot on with what's going on, and he predicted what will happen next. I don't know what his bias or the source of his thinking or how he came to the conclusions he came to. I found it on rincy.com, the, the website, and read it. And um, quite interesting that he showed that this financial thing is going to continue. It's going to get worse. And then he said we're, that the Anglo-Saxon nations of the United States, Britain, Australia, New Zealand, and so on, will then uh, be made subservient, go into captivity to, and become slaves of the rest of the world. Right down the line as we understand it. So I wrote him a note and said, I agree with you on what you said in your article, and I wondered at the source of your thinking. And I said, I see several possibilities. Either you are a very, very insightful person who can look at the political and economic situation in the world and figure out which way it's going to go, which would take quite a bit of insight. Because the analysts here say that, well, it's going to go down and buy silver and gold, and, and then when it's all over, your silver and gold will make you rich. And they don't understand. Yeah, they understand it's going down. They don't understand it's not coming back up in this age. But this man does. So I said, either you have incredible insight or you have an ethnic desire to see the Anglo-Saxon countries go down and this is a hope 
or you have studied the biblical prophecies very closely and understood them to be what they are. And then I said, do you have any connection with the almost defunct Worldwide Church of God of the past uh, where you may have picked up some of these thoughts as well? So we'll see what he has to say. But he sees Isaiah 28 happening to our country. It'll be interesting if he came to those conclusions without benefit of any background knowledge of the Church of God. Uh, he can see what is about to happen. But see it, he does. That article was entitled, uh, Financial Collapse and What Will Happen Next, or something to that effect. Some of you may have seen it on there. It was on yesterday. Worth reading. <clears throat> it had a New Zealand address on the email, though, so I, I know he's from New Zealand. But he wrote in a very broken English. Uh, so he did not grow up in the New Zealand society as a New Zealander, uh, obviously, uh, just from reading the way he's written. It's like reading directions on how to put something together that a Chinese who's learned English wrote. You've seen some of those. And uh, obviously didn't grow up in a New Zealand school. Anyway, that shows we're going down. Now let's read on here. And, and understand. Verse 5, there's a change in thought. In that day, so at the time that we're being destroyed, in that day, shall the eternal of hosts be for a crown of glory and for a diadem of beauty unto the residue of his people. So even as we see this destruction coming on our nation, he says he will be a crown of glory to his residue. So he changes it from the overall destruction of the country to the destruction, I mean, to the, uh, the remnant of the residue of his own people. So he addresses the church here, and it's quite interesting the way he puts it. And for a spirit of judgment to him that sits in judgment, and for strength to them that turn the battle to the gate. So God says he will be a spirit of judgment to those who have good judgment, he will be there to give them guidance and help and make a righteous judgment upon them. His judgment is our nation has to go into captivity. But his remnant people who will be faithful to him and take this battle clear to the gate, right to the end, in defense of his way, he'll be strength for them. But they also, the church, they also have erred through wine they also are drunken. Now, this doesn't mean necessarily physical drunkenness. Now, some in the church are. But it's talking about spiritual drunkenness here. And through strong drink are out of the way. They're going out of the way of God with a spiritual drunkenness that they are imbibing of. Drunkenness makes you stagger. It makes you do things you would not normally do. And people who are spiritually deceived by wrong doctrine, by wrong approach and focus, are going to go in directions that aren't good. And they're going to fall on their face. That's what's going to happen. They've erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine. They are out of the way, the way of God. Through strong drink, they err in vision. They stumble in judgment. 
To err in vision means that you don't clearly see what is coming ahead of us, right? When you're drunken, you're trying to figure out where to put your feet in front of one another, not looking far ahead out there at what's coming. You're only concerned for the moment, will I be able to stand up and stagger home or not? So you're not focused forward, and for lack of vision, God's people are destroyed. They are in vision, they stumble in judgment. They're not making the right judgments. They have the facts laid before them, they have what is, about, what is happening and about to happen in front of them, but they don't make the right judgments. Now that's what's happening in the church today. For all tables are full of vomit and filthiness so that there is no place clean. You'll see this language echoed in Malachi 1 where he addresses the ministry and the church. They were all in vomit. Now only a few are going to clean up and look and see. Whom shall he teach knowledge? In this mess that is the church today, who can God teach knowledge? Only a residue. He addresses that. Only a residue. How much is a residue? You eat dinner and set your plate aside. What is left on the plate is residue. Not much. It's a remnant of what you didn't eat. <coughs> Who will he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand proper teaching or doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. Those who have gone beyond the simple, basic things and who are delving deeper into the truth, who are willing to look at the meat of the matter, not just live on milk from now on. For precept has been upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. Now God said, that's the way it's been. You pick up a little here, a little there, and you put the story together to understand it. Okay? For with stammering lips and another tongue has he spoken to this people. It's like God was speaking a foreign language to the church. It's like he stuttered and stammered a lot, is the analogy that is being used. Christ said he spoke in parables that they might not understand. Not to make the meaning clear, as the Protestants try to tell you. So, the word of God, as the church today reads it, it's like it's a foreign language to them. They don't get it. It's like he stammers and stutters and can't tell you what he's saying. Now, he makes it pretty clear, but to them, they don't get it. They can read these things, and they don't get it. They don't understand it. They don't know what's going on. To whom he said, this is the rest wherewith you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. They won't listen to us. They think we're crazy for moving out here in the desert and preparing for
for God's people to come together and he will take care of them. He will be a wall of protection around them. He'll even change the climate and be a relief from the heat. God is going to do some things that are listed and written right here in this book that they don't get, get at all. They don't understand it. He said, it's going down, but a remnant will get it. It's just here a little, there a little to them, and the ministry doesn't understand and the people don't understand. Let's see here in a little bit some of the things they don't understand. They would not hear. He says, right here is the story of the refreshing. Right here is the story of blessing. In all this destruction we're about to see, there is a message of refreshing. But they wouldn't hear it. Wouldn't get it. Wouldn't see it. <clears throat> They're not beating our door down, are they? To hear about this message of refreshing? No, they're not. Not getting it at all. <clears throat> they wouldn't hear. But the word of the eternal was to them, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little and there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Now he said, I wrote it here a little and there a little, so that if you would pay attention and read it and study it and look at all the scriptures, not one or two or three that you like about whatever subject it is, but study the whole Bible here and there, putting the story together, he said you would understand the refreshing that God is going to protect his people. But if you don't do that, it will remain here a little, there a little, and like somebody talking in a different language or stuttering. I think this is coming into focus more than it has in the past when we've read it. Wherefore, well, wait a minute, it's this way that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. God wrote it this way. He said, if you don't dig it out, you're going to be taken and snared. And they're not digging it out. They're just going on like they always did. Wherefore, hear the word of the eternal, you scornful men, that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. Now, you wouldn't say of the ministry of most of the church of God today that they were scornful, would you? Well, they don't maybe come across of having an attitude of scornfulness in some respects, but if they don't pay attention to and have deep respect for and dig the answers out of God's word, they are scorning God, scorning his word. And those who do dig it out, they hold in contempt and scorn. They say that couldn't be right. That's ridiculous. But they are answering a matter before they have heard it. They've not studied it. They don't know, and therefore they scorn it and blow it off. That is a scornful approach. And they are the leaders, the ministry of the church, which is, we know, 
represented by Jerusalem. All right, because you have said, now here's a problem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with hell are we at agreement. Now what does that mean? We've made a deal that's going to keep us from death. They haven't made a covenant in their mind to die. Hasn't the church made a covenant with what's coming in their own minds that they think is going to save them? We've got a deal made. We're not going to have to die, is what this is saying. With hell, we're at agreement. We, we know what's coming, but we have a way out of this is their approach. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come to us. Now that tells you that I'm right in what I just said. We've made a deal, we understand, and when all this that's coming comes about, it will not come to us. How do they think they're going to escape it? What has been Worldwide's approach all along? You should know that one very well. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. They have a false understanding. They are laboring under what is turning out to be a lie. The idea that we had back in the late 40s, 50s, 60s, and continue today, is that we'll jump on an airplane and go to Petra over in the Middle East and be saved. That's the deal they've made. It's a lie. It isn't the truth. It isn't going to happen that way. That is not the place of safety outlined in the Bible. It is not a place of refuge that God's people will go to. So they have a false hope, a false idea. And it's not going to work. Therefore, verse 16, thus says the eternal God. Now they have their lies, their idea, their covenant they made with their understanding, which came from the Protestants originally anyway, about Petra in the Middle East. And God says it's not going to work out. Now what does he say he's going to do? Let's see the contrast. Therefore, Thus says the eternal God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, uh, a sure foundation. He that believes shall not make haste. Now they think they're going to flee when things get rough. But he says, I am laying, and this is referring obviously ultimately, to Christ himself. He says he's going to come and dwell with his people there in Zechariah 2. He'll be with us in the end time if we respond properly to him. And it's talking about during the time of Joshua and Zerubbabel. It's not talking about the millennium in Zechariah 2. The context is quite obvious there. Judgment also will I lay to the line and righteousness to the plummet. Now, I'm not going to go back to Zechariah and all the places where it talks about the two witnesses being given the plumb line and the line to stretch and measure, Revelation 11, measure the church and the altar and so on. 
He tells them to do all that. We've been there, we've read those scriptures. So what he's saying here is that Christ is the sure stone, but Zerubbabel represents Christ as his earthly representative, and he will be given the plumb line. We can go to other scriptures and see that proved. So when they have their idea and their vision of where they're staggering off to, God says, no, I'm going to lay it in Zion. That's where it's going to be. And he will give to his leadership the authority and the job of determining that which is upright spiritually and that which is not. And they will make decisions on who is allowed and who is not allowed on both the altar and those that worship in the church. Okay. He'll lay judgment to the lion and the plummet, and the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the water shall overflow the hiding place. So this rest, this lying refuge that we heard about all those years is going to be swept away by armies and overrun, it appears. Waters represent armies. So we thought we were going to Petra and God would sweep away the armies. Now here God says, if you believe that lie, that false hope, the water will sweep away the hiding place, not the army, the hiding place. Incredible, isn't it? And your covenant with death shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand. That which you put hope in was a pack of lies. It wasn't said in a lying way, but it wasn't true. And therefore it became a lie. Don't get yourself a ticket to Petra. It's not going to do you any good. Because that's what we've all looked forward to, or did all those years, thinking that was the answer. And scripturally, it is not the answer. So your agreement with hell shall not stand, or death. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then you shall be trodden down by it. Then it goes on to explain... Uh, how the bed is shorter than a man can stretch him, and they can't get enough covers, and things are going to get grim, in other words. I'll not read all of that. <clears throat> but there is, uh, I think, maybe a time order here that I want to explore a little bit. Since we're talking about now and us and this country and everything that's happening, uh, maybe we have a little insight in the way that this is written in somewhat of a time order of events. You go on to chapter 29, and it says, Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. It's a, another name for Jerusalem. And it says, Add you year to year, let them kill sacrifices. And in the original Hebrew, it talks more about let the feast cycle continue. And uh, the offerings there, the sacrifices, would have been the sacrifices on the holy days. So he says, Let the feast cycle happen one more time. Now, what is the context here? I've wondered about this chapter for quite some years now, wondering, well, 
what the cycle, which year, in other words, are we talking about? But if you look at the context itself, it's talking about the time when Ephraim will be fading as a flower, just as she's about to be stomped underfoot, and when the church sees the wrong way out and doesn't understand what's going on, and only a small remnant will get it and will respond properly to God, that's the context here. So, what have we seen since October a year ago? We've seen a very steady decline in our financial fortunes. We've seen fuel prices going up. We've seen it becoming very difficult for Americans to make ends meet. Things have been getting more and more difficult since last fall. So the feast cycle goes from April at Passover around to October, the Feast of Tabernacles. And now as we are coming into the feast season, and are actually in it now, with trumpets, atonement, and now we're shortly going to be keeping the Feast of Tabernacles, we see Ephraim's glory fading very, very rapidly. And the events leading to the total economic collapse and military uh, takeover of this country are coming very rapidly upon us. So is it possibly that this year in which we see things beginning to go down and the feast cycle coming round and now we're almost at a point of collapse on the American and the global economy, that this feast season will be complete and then Katie bar the door? I don't know. But this is a woe to Israel. A woe. Says it, woe to Ariel, to Ariel. Let the feast go round one more year, yet I will distress Ariel. And there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be to me as Ariel. And I will camp against you round about, and will lay siege against you with a mount, and I will raise forts against you. A military attack is coming after the feasts go around one more year. Now, is this lining up? It appears to be. I don't know that it will happen that fast, but after the feast season is complete, it appears there is much sorrow and heaviness ahead in this country. And that appears to be what's shaping up. So maybe Isaiah 28 and 29 and 30 are speaking of this year. Very possible. And you shall be brought down and shall speak out of the ground, and your speech shall be low out of the dust, and your voice shall be as one that has a familiar spirit out of the ground, and your speech shall whisper out of the dust. Knocked down, flat on the ground, about to die, and it'll be like the croak of a dying person laying on the ground in the dust. That's all the power we are going to have very shortly. Take them down. Then there's a change in thought. Moreover, the multitude of your strangers shall be like small dust, and the multitude of your terrible ones shall be as chaff that passes away. It shall be at an instant suddenly. So this thing is going to come 
and we're going to be crying out of the dust, and then our enemies are going to be destroyed shortly thereafter. Isn't that what God says is going to happen? They're going to have their new world order come up and think that they're going to have peace on earth, and then they will be destroyed shortly thereafter, about three and a half years after it really takes effect. You shall be visited of the eternal of hosts with thunder and earthquake and great noise with storm and tempest and the flaming or flame of devouring fire. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, even all that fight against her and her munition and, and that distress her, shall be as a dream of a night vision. In other words, it's going to go away. You wake up and the dream is gone. So uh, they're going to attack us, but it won't last long. The captivity won't last long until Christ returns. And who are they going to turn against? We've read in other scriptures that once they destroy this nation and they set up their kingdom, who will they come against? The only ones who defy them. And the only ones who will defy them will be the remnant of God's church. We're the only ones. The rest of the world are going to worship the beast. So he narrows it down very quickly here. Let's uh, see verse 8, the end of it. But he awakes, and his soul is empty, or as when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he drinks. But he wakes, and behold, he is faint, and his soul has appetite. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. God is going to take his people to Zion. There he will protect them. There he will send forth emissaries to preach to the world and be a witness against them, and they will fight against Mount Zion. Stay yourselves and wonder, cry out, and cry. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Eternal has poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep, and has closed your eyes. The prophets and your rulers, those who should see ahead, has he covered. It continues the theme of Isaiah 28, that the leaders have no vision, they can't see, they don't know what is going to happen, they think they're going to be taken away on an airplane and everything will be just okay. And I think that this section of scripture dispels and blows that idea apart. Their eyes are covered, they can't see. And the vision of all has become to you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men to deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray you. And he says, I can't, it's sealed. I, I don't understand all that stuff. Well, we don't need to talk prophecy. Well, we're right in the middle of it. Maybe we ought to be talking about it. Maybe we ought to understand what's happening. And maybe we should have the right response to what is happening. Verse 13, Wherefore the Eternal said, For as much as this people draw near to me with their mouth, and where their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Just men's ideas. Let's fear God. Well, but they don't understand what it means. They don't understand what's happening. And their heart is not really with God. It's in doing their work, however they may define that but not doing what God wants done. What does he want done? He wants the temple built. Haggai makes it very clear. He makes it very clear that Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people who come as a remnant will be the ones who do that. 
that's what he wants done. But they don't think that. They think the Jews will do that for God, and they're going to run off to safety somewhere in Petra and be safe. They don't have any clue what God wants done. Now the Jews have already got them a temple figured out. They have the pieces all ready to put together, and they will build themselves a temple, I'm quite sure. But it won't be God's temple. It'll be the Jews' temple. And it'll be a false temple and a false city and a false land that never was the promised land. Because Satan is the great deceiver. And he's deceived in religion. And I think Gordon made a really good point a few weeks ago. If Satan can deceive you in religion, can't he deceive you in history as well? And I would add further to that, you cannot deceive in religion unless you deceive in history. Because history and religion are tied together and cannot be separated. So Satan has to be deceiving about history if he is deceiving about religion. You can't separate it. Yeah, there's a deep sleep, all right. Better believe it. It's deeper than we imagined. Anyway, let's go on down. Their heart really isn't there. Now, how do you know where your heart is? You see, the heart can have emotion. There are a lot of people out in the world, Protestant world, Catholic world, Buddhist world, who have in their mind an idea of God, and they can have great emotion. In fact, if you want to examine Protestantism, it's mostly about emotion. And my heart is with God. My feelings, my songs, my sermons are sweet. That's the way they approach things, with great emotion. And they think their heart is with God because of the emotion involved. That is not how God judges the heart. Now, he says those people who have all that heart full a heart full of emotion, are deceived. And that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So you can have all the emotion in the world and think that you are wholehearted before God and not have your heart with God at all. How can that be? God says that your heart and your obedience are equivalent. He says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He puts it several different ways. Now, is our treasure, physical treasure, is what he was speaking of there, in him, or is it somewhere else? That tells God where your heart is. It's that simple. We can have a lot of emotion about God, but if we don't obey him, our heart is not with him. So 
So we have to be obedient to God. And that's how he judges our heart. There are a lot of people who think they love somebody. And all it is is emotion. They don't even know what love means. Don't understand it. They have these feelings. And then later on they realize, well, that was just feelings. Now, I didn't really love that person at all. Sometimes it takes them 5, 10, 15, 20 years to figure it out. They don't understand love. They understand emotion. And there's more to it than that. So let's not be deceived. Your heart is not with God unless you obey him and fear and tremble at his word. So their lips are there. Oh yeah, I love God. But the heart is a long way away. Therefore, behold, verse 14, I will proceed to do an amazing work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. This is talking about the church. Those who are considered wise and understanding are going to have that all taken away. It will be made to be shown what it really is. Woe to them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the eternal, and their works are in the dark, and they say, Who sees us, and who knows us? Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay, for shall the work say of him that made it, he made me not. We're not willing to admit really who God is and what he wants done. But notice here, verse 17, it is not yet, it is not yet, or it is only a little while, and Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful fields shall be esteemed as a forest. Now, Lebanon is symbolic of cedars, fine trees. It is symbolic of wealth. And in this context, it says the Lebanon will be like a fruitful field. And it may very well be that we now know where the original Lebanon was. It means white. It means heart. And I know a heart-shaped valley that I think is going to become very fruitful soon and be counted as a forest. Not just a tree, but as a forest. And that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. So people who have been deaf and blind to what is really going on are going to wake up and understand so in the context of Ephraim falling, of military destruction, of the church being asleep, he says there's going to be something that becomes very productive soon. And it will cause people who couldn't see to see. Even the two witnesses are listed in Isaiah 52, 8 or 9, but they won't see eye to eye until God turns it around. And this is talking about God turning it around, and that which has not been fruitful becoming very fruitful. And it will cause the eyes of the blind to see out of obscurity and out of darkness. They've been drunk on wrong doctrine, wrong premises, wrong ideas all this time. 
The meek shall increase their joy in the eternal, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. So not the proud, not the egocentric, not the ones who think they're the leaders, but the meek and those who will listen to God will rejoice. For the terrible one is brought to nothing, or the, the great one, the ones who put themselves up. And the scorner is consumed, and all that watch for iniquity are cut off. He goes down in verse 24 and says, They also that erred in spirit shall come to understanding, and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. So what is going to happen at the time that this country goes down and there is a turnaround is that some things are going to happen, marvelous works of God are going to happen that cause people to suddenly see a different picture than what they've always looked at. Remember, this is talking about the church. They'll see a different picture. And those who murmured against the true picture, those who scorned it, who turned a deaf ear to it, are going to have their eyes opened, their ears opened, and they're going to begin to see. So I think that we have a very interesting three chapters here in what is about to happen. 28, 29... Well, in verse 30, or chapter 30, I mean. Woe to the rebellious children, says the Eternal, that take counsel, but not of me. They have their own ideas. That cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. They're going the wrong way. They go to this world. They look to it. Let's say, let's go on down to verse 10 which say to the seers, or those who should see, See not, and to the prophets prophesy not unto us right things, speak to us smooth things, prophesy deceits. It is deceitful to think that though we be lukewarm and not really on fire for God, we're going to jump on a plane and go be protected. Of course, they all think everyone is going to go into the tribulation but them is the way they look at it. We've been over that. Because those are all the Laodiceans were the Philadelphians. No, I don't want us, brethren, to get into that trap where we think we're the Philadelphians and they're all Laodiceans out there. We need to repent. We need to turn to God with our whole heart, not just our emotions, but with our obedience, our lives the way we live and act and react one to another and react to God. Heart is not emotion. Now, it can have emotion. Sometimes it takes emotion to get us straightened out and to get us on the right track of obedience to all of God's words. But it is not emotion itself. Just because somebody says, my heart, I gave my heart to the Lord, or however they want to term it, or I, my whole heart is to God, Unless they turn their lives to God, the emotion means nothing. They want to hear the smooth prophecy of deceit. Not everything's going to be okay. Just stay with me. Get you out of the way. Turn aside out of the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. We don't want to hear the real truth. We don't want to have to repent. We don't want to change our view. We want to keep doing the thing we've always been doing. 
And yet God destroyed the church to cause it to change, to do things differently than it has been doing them. So why do most of us insist on continuing just the way it's been? Wherefore, thus says the Eternal, or the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word, his word, and trust in oppression and perverseness, and stay thereon, they still got oppression in the churches. They still got the ministry up on a pedestal to tell everybody what to do and when to do it and how to do it and everything else. Abuse of power, it's still there. Therefore this iniquity shall be to you as a breach ready to fall, swelling out in a high wall whose breaking comes suddenly at an instant. So it's going to come suddenly at an instant, just like a leaning tower of Pisa or a wall, and then suddenly crash. And all but the remnant of God's people are going to be involved in it. The whole nation physically and most of the church are going to be caught in the falling wall. He shall break it as the breaking of the potter's vessel that is broken in pieces. He shall not spare, so that there shall not be found in the bursting of it a shard to take fire from the hearth or to take water out of the pit. In other words, when this nation and the church fall to the ground, it will break like a clay pot, and there won't be a piece big enough to dip water out of a hole or to dip fire out of, you know, ashes out of a fire. That's how completely it's going to break, shattered into small pieces. Well, I want to go on from there, uh, not spend more time, but I think putting those chapters together, we see a picture that shows that there is hope for those who will take here a little and there a little and put the story together out of the whole Bible and understand the whole Bible, and those who just see a little here and a little there and don't put the whole thing together because they don't study it and they are taken and snared, and what is now coming upon us, and only those who listen to those who have been raised up to teach are going to be found in Zion with the precious cornerstone, our Savior, the Christ. That's what it boils down to. It's only going to be a few. So this prophecy fits the rest of the prophecies. All right, let's go on to Jeremiah chapter 4. I want to hit a couple of short ones. I'm just sort of going through all the scriptures that mention Ephraim in particular. Now, there are many, many scriptures that we are not touching here that mention Jacob or Israel, uh, but Ephraim, in specific, is our study today because we're studying our fathers and those scriptures which have to do specifically with Ephraim, uh, not just all of Israel. But in chapter 4 of Zechariah, we find uh, down in verse 15, Ephraim mentioned. Now, this chapter is talking about all the abominations of Israel in God's sight. And he says to, for, to circumcise, verse 4, the foreskin of our heart, not of the flesh, but to change the way our heart our emotions, 
our obedience to God are. The heart ultimately is the mind. Yes, there is a center of emotion perhaps in the heart and in the, in the uh, intestines and bowels because you feel emotion there. But it's really all supposed to be controlled by the mind. So we're supposed to be obeying the things that God brings to our mind through his scripture, and that is circumcising the foreskin of our heart, getting our thinking straightened out. Lest my fury come forth like fire. And in verse 5 he says, Declare in Judah, and publish in Jerusalem, and say, Blow you the trumpet in the land, cry, gather together, and say, Assemble yourselves, and let us get into the defense cities, in other words, there's a war coming. You better go to where you think you're going to be safe. Set up the standard toward Zion. Retire, stay not, for I will bring evil from the north and the great destruction. If they think they're going to save themselves, they better gather together, get their armies ready, because trouble is coming. He says in verse 7, The lion has come up from his thicket, and the destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. Do you think that they're going to put their defense together? Do you think they're going to protect this country? No, they're not. They're going to allow it. Could we, if we had the pride of our power still intact, destroy these nations who are supposed to come and destroy us? Yes, we could. We have enough nuclear bombs that we could bomb every capital on this earth. We could destroy with Adam and hydrogen bombs, anyone who made any kind of a threat against us. We have today that power. We will not use it. We are being betrayed by treasonous leaders who are destroying us. And it's almost funny to watch them running around like they're trying to find a solution to this financial problem when they are pulling the rug out from under us and doing it on purpose. They want America gone so they can have their new world order. The Prime Minister of Italy said yesterday, Prime Minister Berlusconi, that the leaders of the world recognize that this is not a problem that needs a national solution or of a few nations, but it needs a global solution. And he said that when the leaders of the world get together, they may decide to suspend all trading and all the markets around the earth until they rewrite the rules for a global order. The G7 are meeting today as we meet here. Do you think they are discussing a solution to how to solve the American financial problem? No. They're looking for a solution to solve the global problem. It is a global problem. And they're blaming us for the problem. Their solution will be to continue and destroy us and have a solution that does not include us. That's what they're discussing today. And it's what they're going to discuss tomorrow. They already have the plan pretty well in place. They have begun 
the implementation of the American solution. The destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. It won't be long. Notice down in verse 9, end of the verse, the priests shall be astonished and the prophets shall wonder. This isn't the way we thought it was coming down. It's different. Why are we still here? Where was the plane to Petra? Why are we here? The scriptures make it very clear 90% of the church is going into the tribulation. 90% of the church is not going to Petra. Half the church is not going to Petra. And in fact, none of the church is going to Petra. It's not the place God defines as his place that he has prepared. I can back that up with a multitude of scriptures, but I don't have time today. We've already been there anyway. Verse 14, O Jerusalem, the church, wash your heart from wickedness that you may be saved. Now that gives you some insight right there into what I said a few minutes ago. Wash your heart from wickedness, sin, disobedience to God. That's what needs to be washed in our heart. It's not just emotion, it's getting the sin out of our lives. How long shall your vain thoughts lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan and publishes affliction from Mount Ephraim. Do we have some Danites in this country? I don't know. Perhaps. We thought Dan was in Denmark, perhaps in Ireland. I don't know of anything coming from there right now. I don't know of anything coming from the United Kingdom at all. But from Mount Ephraim, a warning is being given. It's not being heeded. But are we publishing affliction or not? Make you mention to the nations, Behold, publish against Jerusalem, publish against the church and the nation as a whole, that watchers come from a far country and give out their voice against the cities of Judah. Who's Judah? The true spiritual Judah is the church. Verse 20, destruction upon destruction is cried, for the whole land is spoiled. Suddenly are my tents spoiled and my curtains in a moment. If this is the slide toward our destruction, it's not going to take very long. It won't take long. For my people is foolish. They've not known me. They are sottish children. They have no understanding. They're wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. This needs to be published from Dan and from Ephraim. Watch and see where it comes from. Then you'll know maybe where Dan and where Ephraim are, if you haven't figured that out already. <clears throat> then Jeremiah 7. Here he mentions verse 15, Ephraim again. But let's pick up the context a little bit and understand what it's talking about. The word came to Jeremiah from the eternal saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, the church, the temple, and proclaim there this word and say, 
Hear the word of the Eternal, all you of Judah, the church, that enter in at these gates to worship the Eternal. Now this is God's house, not the Pope's house, not the Jews' house, not the Baptist's house. This is God's house. So it's talking about the spiritual Jews today, not just the physical Jews. Because the physical Jews are not gathering at God's house, are they? Never have. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Trust not in lying words, saying, we're in the church, we're in the church, we're in the church, so everything will be okay. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, so he's saying here the church needs to change some things. As I've said many times, recreating worldwide doesn't accomplish a thing for us. God destroyed worldwide because of what it was. Recreating that does us no good. It got vomited out. We've got to go far above and beyond what we were. Not what they were, but what we were in worldwide. I have to be a lot different than what I was, is the way we have to look at this. Now what does he say? Amend your ways. Verse 6, if you oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt. This whole nation is walking after other gods of materiality, of pleasure, of self... Uh, well, I can't think of the word I'm trying to say. Taking care of the self anyway, selfishness. So he says, here's what you need to do, verse 6. If you oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, and don't shed innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt. Put away your idols. Then will I cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. And then he talks about Ephraim a little further down. Where is this message coming from, brethren? Is it coming from the Middle East? Is it coming from that Jerusalem? No. Has it ever in the end time come from over there? No, it has not. Herbert Armstrong preached first in Oregon and then in Pasadena. God's work, the whole entire end time has been in this country and this country only. And it will continue that way. He has showed us this area is important and that we should be here, not over there. It will be published from Mount Ephraim. And he says, this land will I give you, and it is the land of promise I gave to your fathers. So where we are and where the gospel is being preached truly in the right way is the promised land. I hope we can all see that by now. In this place, the place where we are, I do not know of any converts that ever occurred in the end time in the country we call Israel today. 
There has never been a congregation of Worldwide Church of God over there. Period. There's been one in Malaysia, been one in Thailand, been one in Dusseldorf, been one in Brasilia, been one in Santiago, not been one congregation of God in the land we call Israel. Because God is simply not there. God has never been there. And he will not return to a place that he's never been. Oh, I, I think he visited it when he was here on the earth. I think Paul and the other apostles visited it. I think that there probably was a congregation of God there back then because they were all over the Mediterranean. But God has not established a presence over there here at the end time at all. That should speak volumes to us. And we should look to where God has been working in the end time. And it's been in this country. That's just a matter of history. Okay. I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land I gave to your fathers forever and ever. That's where the temple of the Lord is. That's where the church is. And has been in the end time. Verse 10, And come and stand before me in this house, which is called my name, and say we are delivered to do all these abominations. Is this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? He says we've robbed him in Malachi 3. Behold, even I have seen it, says the Eternal. So he keeps talking about the church here. He says, Therefore will I do, verse 14, Therefore will I do to this house, which is called by my name, wherein you trust. Now, don't we trust in the church of God, the one called by his name? We've always trusted in it since we've been converted. The place which I gave to you and to your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. So he says the place where the church is, is the same place I gave to your fathers. Now is this becoming clearer and clearer or not? As I have done to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren, even the whole seed of Ephraim. So he says the church, the house called by his name, is headquartered in Ephraim. And it is the place of our fathers. And it's the church called by his name. I will cast you out of my sight as I have cast out all your brethren, even the whole seed of Ephraim. So he's going to say, I'm going to destroy Ephraim, and I'm going to destroy the church with it. You haven't really trusted in God, you've trusted in the church. And it is in the land that I gave your fathers. And I'm going to destroy you with it, except for a remnant. So Ephraim and the church are tied together, are they not? And the place that was given to our fathers originally, the promised land, in this place, the land I gave your fathers, of verse 7, is again mentioned in verse 14. So it's talking about us here now. It's talking about this nation now. 
this nation of Ephraim. And then he says, Therefore pray not you for this people, neither lift up cry nor prayer for them, neither make an intercession to me, for I will not hear you. Don't even pray for this nation at this point. God is going to destroy it. The judgment has been made. It's a done deal. All it lacks is the fulfillment of it now, and that has started. So Ephraim is in prophecy, and we're right here in Ephraim. Now let's go to chapter 31. I'll wrap this up pretty quickly here. I've got uh, a couple more places to go, but I won't get all of it today. Chapter 31. Look at the last verse of chapter, t- of, of, uh, chapter 30 first. What he's talking about here, in this context, he says, The fierce anger of the Eternal shall not return until he have done it, and until he have performed the intents of his heart. He just said, don't pray for this nation, don't pray for this people. Still talking about Israel, still talking about Ephraim, uh, as the leader of all Israel. Till my anger is satisfied, it's not going to return to me. Until he have performed the intents of his heart, in the latter days you shall understand it. Well, this is something to be understood in the latter days. These are the latter days, the last days. They made a chapter break here, but the thought continues. Chapter 31. At the same time, so in the latter days, So he says, at the same time of the latter days, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Eternal, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness. So he says, I'm going to destroy it, but the people that are left by the sword, the ones that survive, shall find grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. The wilderness of Israel. Where did God lead us? I believe this is the wilderness of Israel. We're going to be able to rest here when all this comes down. Those people in the cities won't have any rest unless it's the final dirt sleep. Only those who come out from her, my people. Eternal has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. God has loved us enough, brethren, to let us understand that we have to leave the city and go dwell in the wilderness, and there we will find, be delivered, as it says in Micah 4, and we'll find grace in the wilderness, as it says here. Who's it talking about? We'll see in a moment. He's talking about Israel in the latter days. I've drawn you out. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin of Israel. He's going to forgive our sins and make us clean before him. Sin can be wiped out. We will be considered virgins spiritually again. You shall again be adorned with your tabrets, and shall go forth in the dances of them that make merry. He says he'll turn those fasts of Zechariah in the end time into feasts of joy. I I can't wait until when the fasts of the months come around, there'll be a feast of the month. You know, this is going to be great. I'd really rather feast than fast. 
You shall, plant, you shall yet plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria. Israel. Well, God has brought us out here. These are the original mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant, and they shall eat them as common things. There's going to be plenty for God's people. What is it talking about? In the latter days. For there shall be a day that the watchman upon the Mount Ephraim shall cry, Arise you, and let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. In the latter days, Christ, he says, is going to come and dwell with his people in Zion. Zechariah 2. Very clear. And here in the latter days, there will be a watchman on Mount Ephraim crying, Arise and let us get up to Zion, to the Lord our God. Now is that a contrast to the preacher saying, Get in the plane and let's all go to Petra? That is not in the book. I challenge them. Find it. It's not in there. In Mount Zion, in the Middle East, that Mount Zion is not even a mountain. It isn't even a hill. It's a slope off the side of that city of Jerusalem that goes down into the valley and has a cemetery on it. It is not the joy of all the land, and it has no height to it. It's curve height. Been there, walked on it. That's all it is. So someone will stand in Mount Ephraim and say, let's go up to Zion to the Lord our God. That's where he's going to be. That's where I want to be. For thus says the Eternal, sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chief of the nations. Publish you, praise you, and say, O Eternal, save your people, the remnant of Israel. The only remnant that will remain is the church. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the coasts of the earth, and with them the blind and the lame, the woman with child, and her that travails with child together. A great company shall return here to Mount Zion, the place of safety, the place of refuge, the place where Christ will dwell in the end time with the two witnesses and his people who come to build the temple. That's where it will be. They shall come with weeping and with supplications will I lead them. Read Isaiah 35 about the solitary place, the desert blooming as a rose, and how the lame will leap like the heart, the deaf will hear. He'll take away the briars and the thorns. It's talking about just ahead of us in history in the land of Ephraim where his remnant will come. They shall come with weeping and supplication. Will I lead them? I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way wherein they shall not, be, shall not stumble. We just read in Isaiah about how they'd stumble around and be like they were drunks and not understand. But some will hear and the murmuring and the misunderstanding will disappear when God turns it around. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. This is all going to be under the leadership of Ephraim, and Mount Zion is in Ephraim in the end time. Hear the word of the Eternal, O you nations, and declare it in the uh, coastlines far off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Eternal has redeemed Jacob, 
and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. So we're, the nation is going into war, going into destruction. The church is going to go with it, except for a 10% remnant that is going to come, and God is going to protect them. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion. They're going to sing in the height of Zion, not in the caves of Petra. And shall flow together to the goodness of the eternal for wheat and for wine and for oil and for the young of the flock and of the herd. And their souls shall be as a watered garden and they shall not sorrow any more at all. Then shall a virgin rejoice in the dance, both young men and old together. That means the young and the old men are going to be considered virgins by God. Didn't Paul refer to the Corinthian church as virgins? And they had been the most debauched, adulterous, sexual, deviant nation around in Corinth. And yet, once they were repentant, and forgiven, God considered them virgins again. So we're going to be virgins from the religions and the idolatry of this world. And God is going to look upon us as spiritual virgins. We have to be in order to marry Christ. He's going to clean us all up, make us pure again. And we'll dance. Lots of dances. And I will satiate the soul of the priest with fatness, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Eternal. Let's go on down to verse 17 for sake of time. There is hope in your end, says the Eternal, that your children shall come again to their own border. The church from all over the world is going to come to the true border of where it all began, where God started it, where he's continued it in this end time. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. You have chastised me, and I was chastised as a bullock, unaccustomed to the yoke. We'll find in the book of Hosea he refers to Israel and to Ephraim as a backsliding heifer. A bullock unaccustomed to the yoke plants all four feet, and leans backward, will not be led. And I shall be turned, for you are the eternal my God. Surely after that I was turned, I repented. And after that I was instructed, I smote upon my thigh. I was ashamed, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. We're going to wake up. The remnant will wake up and come singing and ready to build the temple. Verse 20, is Ephraim my dear son? Now we look at all this destruction that is about to come on this country and has already started. And we say, is, is this God's dear son? This country? How could that be? Is this the way you treat a dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spoke against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, says the Eternal. So God is going to bring this incredible destruction. Even Jeremiah says, don't even pray for them. And yet God is going to be hurting inside the whole time. He's going to have his intestines all in an uproar. You know how it is when you hear really bad news, someone you're close to, maybe someone in your family has died, and it just hits you right in the guts. A physical feeling that just overpowers you. 
when really bad news comes. And that's the way God feels about us, brethren. He loves us. We're his dear child. But what's it going to take to straighten us up? He knows what it's going to take. So ever since I spoke against him, my bowels are troubled. I will surely have mercy upon him. Set you up waymarks, make you high heaps, set your heart toward the highway, even the way which you went. Turn again, O virgin of Israel, turn again to these, your cities, your own place. These cities that are being destroyed and are going to be destroyed shortly. So it's all going to turn around. It'll be pleasant again. And you'll be able to turn back to your own cities, your own country, your own place that I gave you. How long will you go about, O you backsliding daughter? For the eternal has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall compass a man. That is reflective of Isaiah where it says seven men, women will take hold of one man, the seven churches are going to come to the leader that God designates. Ties in beautifully with this. All right, that gives an idea there of how he feels about this people, this nation, in spite of the destruction that's coming. Let's go to one more today, and that's in Ezekiel 37. When this is said and done... He's going to join Israel together again. Chapter 37 of Ezekiel, verse 15. The word of the Eternal came to me again, saying, Moreover, you son of man, take you one stick and write upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel as companions. Then take another stick and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel his companions. So he makes Judah and Ephraim the leaders and wrote the name of each on a stick, and join them one to another into one stick, and they shall become one in your hand. And when the children of your people shall speak to you, saying, Will you not show us what you mean by these? What are these sticks all about? Say to them, Thus says the Eternal of God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim. We, the firstborn, and the church of the firstborn, are in Ephraim and the tribes of Israel his fellows, and will put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and there shall be one stick in my hand. So he's going to join the tribes of Israel all together again as one nation. And say to them, Thus says the eternal God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, where they be gone, going to be scattered into captivity, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. This is our own land. This is my land. This is where I grew up. This is where Ephraim in the end time is. This is Mount Ephraim where Herbert Armstrong stood up and preached. And it's Mount Ephraim where we are again preaching today. In their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. And the one king shall be king to them all. And they shall no more be two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. When Joshua settled the land, he settled this area around us here and north of us. And God said he's going to join all Israel together again in their place, their own place given to the fathers. It's going to be right here. 
all the nations of Israel gathered together in one area. The archaeologists have looked and looked and looked for those cities that are mentioned in the book of Joshua where he settled Israel. They cannot find any of them. They're not there. They've looked and looked and looked. Well, where are all these cities that they settled these people in the day of Joshua? They're not in the Middle East. They're gone. They can't find them. The ruins are not there. That's because it didn't happen there. There are so many stories in the Bible that the archaeologists can simply not confirm. It's just not there. God has done his work originally here. He's doing his work here now. This nation, this Mount Ephraim, is where God has started and is finishing his work. And it's where Christ is going to come and dwell with his people before the millennium ever comes, before he returns in glory. He's going to dwell with us and be our God and bless us in Mount Ephraim and in Mount Zion, and we will sing in the heights of Zion. It's all one spot. can't be separated. So be thankful you're in the land of Ephraim. Be thankful you're part of the firstborn and the church of the firstborn because God has great things that will be done in this nation, both wonderful in terms of destruction, but also wonderful in terms of deliverance for those who will amend their hearts and get their obedience to the level that we really are not walking in the way of the world and trying to serve God and this world, but serving God himself. There's one major section left on Ephraim we'll get to, but we'll stop there for today.